Job chapter 42. And I want to read here Job's prayer. And it doesn't say that it's a prayer, but it does say that he is answering the Lord. So in that sense, it would be a prayer because we define prayer as our talking to to God. And so here, Job is talking directly to the Lord Himself. And Job says in Job 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. Last week we took a look at the subject of confessing sin when it comes to our prayer life. I hope that every one of us, to some measure or some degree, did work on that this week. And I do think that we do have a tendency to get so wrapped up in our request that we forget to come before Him confessing our sins, our ungodliness, the ways that we are not like Christ to Him, and ask for that cleansing. But tonight I want to look at a particular confession of sin that is so deceptive that it is often overlooked and unnoticed in our lives. But the Lord has a tool. He has a tool that is utilized in His hand that will both expose this deceptive sin and bring it up to our knowledge. Apart from this tool, we really don't think about this at all. So the Lord has a tool in His hands, the hands of a loving Lord that is designed to expose this deceptive, overlooked, misunderstood sin and bring it to the forefront of our knowledge. If our Lord did not do this, I dare say, and I am conjecturing here, that mankind would hardly ever come to the knowledge of this sin apart from the Word of God. When this sin lives in our understanding, we die to our own self-righteousness. What might these two things be? What might be the tool in the hand of a loving Lord 
that he would use to expose and bring to light this sin in our life. And that tool is, and I've just described it this way, afflictive circumstances. The tool is afflictive circumstances. When I use the word afflictive, I could be I could have said distressing circumstances. I could have said oppressive circumstances. I could have said constrictive circumstances. But all of that is just under this broad word <clears throat> affliction. The tool is afflictive circumstances. And the sin that is dead that comes to life in our afflictive circumstances, that sin is that sin is our pride. Our pride. Now think about it just for a second. <clears throat> when everything is going well and circumstances are sunny and the money is there for the bills, and all the relationships are functioning properly, more than likely the one sin that we would not think about confessing is pride. But when afflictive circumstances come, that sin is exposed. And when it is exposed, when it does come to life to our understanding and we really understand what is happening, what happens internally is what Romans chapter 7 calls a death. It's a death to our self-righteousness. It's a death to how good we think we are, how well we think we're doing, There's just a death that occurs when this happens. And I think that if we really give some thought to this, I think that you and I could make those parallels, if not from the Scripture, even from our own personal pilgrimage as a believer. Let me just talk through one instance. The Apostle Peter. Peter was a very self-confident man, wasn't he? He was pretty much a pretty self-assured type of man. He was the leader of the twelve. He normally was the spokesman that if our Lord asked any of the twelve something as a group, he's normally the one that would speak up on behalf of the group. And in Matthew 26, when he's at the Lord's table and the Lord tells him that all of those disciples were going to be scattered that night because this was in agreement with what the prophet Zacharias said. What did Peter say? What did he say? Alfreda's shaking her head. Not me. Yeah, that's that's what I said. Right, not me. In other words, everybody, everybody might do what the prophet foretold, but not who? 
not me. I'm ready to die. I'll give my life for you. And our Lord just looked at him and said, Peter, will you really give your life for me? Before the cock crows three times, you're going to what? You're going to deny me. You're going to deny you ever knew me. And what did Peter say? I would never do that. Now folks, what is that? That is pride of man, is it not? And thankfully, Luke writes, when our Lord looked at him and said, Satan has obtained by asking to sift all of you, the disciples, like wheat. But Peter, now think about that. All the disciples are going to be sifted like what? Wheat. But Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. (coughs) Why was Peter in danger of his faith failing? Because of the height of his pride. When you sift something like wheat, you separate the chaff from the kernel. Peter had a lot of chaff. And when our Lord there in that courtyard and He was being transported from one of the buildings to another and Peter was on his third denial and he swore. He swore with an oath. I don't know the man. And the cock crew and Peter looked up and heard the bustle, and our Lord is being taken over that bridge between the two buildings. And the Scripture says that Jesus looked at him. I can't imagine, can you? And Peter ran from the courtyard, weeping bitterly. I'm sure that Peter and the other disciples were not aware that they had this insidious evil in their fallen nature called pride. But when the afflictive circumstance came to Peter, it exposed something, didn't it? It brought something to life in Peter's life. And I am sure that when our Lord looked upon him and he remembered the words that Jesus had said to him, his inner world crashed. It was the chaff being separated from the kernel of the wheat. 
And folks, all of us have chaff, do we not? Even as believers, we have chaff. It was the afflictive circumstance that brought this to Peter's mind. None of the disciples were even thinking about this sin as they argued who was the greatest. Can you imagine a more prideful circumstance than 12 apostles sitting around at a table while Jesus is there (laughs) arguing who's the greatest? Is that not a sign of pride? The tool in the hands of a loving Lord is afflictive circumstances that give rise within us to something that we don't think exists. It's dead to our understanding. Until until those afflictive circumstances cause it to rise up. Let me give you another situation. Let me have you turn there. Go to Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 4, we have the situation of King Nebuchadnezzar. And God had given this man great kingdoms. He had given him great conquest. He was the king over all the known world in his life. He was given to him by God. God gave him this sovereignty over man. And you know some of the story here. He had a dream and he saw a statue and he's the the head of gold. He didn't hear anything else in that whole dream except that. How do I know that? Because then he constructs a statue of himself made out of made out of gold and he demands that everybody bow down and worship that and three young Hebrew children didn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and they got thrown in the fire did they not? but Nebuchadnezzar was warned about his pride he had another dream and in that dream Daniel says that he was representative of a tree. And a messenger, an angelic being in this dream said concerning that tree, chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. That's seven years. And twelve months later, our memories are very short, aren't they? Twelve months later, verse 29, Daniel 4, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself had built as a royal 
resonance by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Surely you see that statement as prideful. We might even say arrogant, right? Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be the beast of the field, and you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it to whomsoever he wishes. And you know what happened to that man? He had a beastly heart full of pride and he became a beast. Verse 33, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind, eating grass like cattle. Body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. We would call that insanity today, wouldn't we? Now think about this. This is the great king and he's out in the pasture. January, February, March, April, May, June. Seven years of the four seasons he's out in this field. Surviving on what? On grass. And in Daniel 4, verse 34, it says, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. Now look at this. He raised his eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. Folks, what does a reasonable man do? He blesses the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever and ever. Folks, a man who has proper reason acknowledges who he is and who God is. Otherwise, we're no better than what? We're no better than the beast of the field. It says it again in verse 36, At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now note the last verse. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise exalt and honor the King of heaven for all His works are true and His ways just and He is able to humble those who walk in pride. How did God do it? Folks, how did God do it in this lost Gentile man? 
He brought afflictive circumstances into his life, did he not? I would call being out in the field and acting like an ox affliction. But it took that level of humbling in that man's life. He had so exalted himself that it took that level of humbling, abasing of Nebuchadnezzar for his reason to return and for him to think properly about himself and his position and his kingdom. The sin of his pride did not live to his understanding until the mighty hand exerted the tool of afflictive circumstances in his life. Everybody see that? Now let's go to Job. Because everybody knows that Job was afflicted. Don't you know that? In fact, we'll have people, they'll they'll get up and... You know, their television might be broken and they'll say, I'm having a Job day. I doubt it, but we, we, that's proverbial, isn't it? What we're saying is, is I've got distress in my life. Well, you know that the Bible says that Job was a righteous man. Job himself is declared by God to be blameless, to be upright. He feared God and he turned away from evil. That's a mighty man, isn't it? And God blessed him. Not only that, but Job continually prayed. Back in the patriarch's day, the... The father was the patriarch of the family and acted as priest for the family. We're in different circumstances today in the New Testament. But Job offered sacrifices and prayed for his family every week because he said in his heart, Maybe my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And he offered lambs. He shed the blood of an innocent animal. Looking forward to who? The coming Christ. Would you call him a good man? He's a good man. Is he thinking properly? He is thinking properly. But in one day, he lost every part of his material possessions. He lost his sheep, his camels, his servants. He lost everything dealing with his occupation. We had worded this way, we lost our job, the stock market crashed, I lost all my money. And you know what this man says? He fell to the ground and worshipped. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's a good man, isn't he? 
I sincerely doubt that many of us, if not most of us, would respond in that fashion. But Job did. That was his prayer. The Lord gave. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was his worship. That was his prayer. And then even in Job 2, when he loses his most precious thing, what is our most precious thing? It is our own life. His health was taken away from him severely. It wasn't like he had a cold or something like that. From the top of his head to the bottom of his seats were sores and oozing pus, and you know, they didn't have Tylenol and all that kind of stuff that we take. And you know what the Bible says? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And folks, when you pray, you pray with your lips, do you not? His wife advised him to sin with his lips. But folks, you and I know that as the book goes on, that Job's speech begins to take a turn, not for the better, but for the worse. And if you go to Job chapter 10 and just look at the first couple of verses here, Job says, I loathe my own life and I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. What was Job demanding? Why? He wanted to know why. Now, if we've never read this book, you're probably saying to yourself, well, of course. (laughs) Everybody wants to know why. But he began to demand that God tell him why. Folks, at this point, you should be smelling something. The aroma of what sin? Pride. Why is that? Because you're demanding God to answer to who? To you. Not you answer to God. He'll go on and let me know why you contend with me. In other words, I demand the reason for this affliction that I don't deserve. In Job chapter 13 and in verse 23, Job again says, How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. In other words, he's saying, Lord, I'm not rebelling. I'm not sinning in your sight. Why are you doing this? We may not word it that way. We may word it this way. Well, I'm just trying to serve you, Lord. And all this has come upon me. Now folks, when that that begins to arise in your heart, 
you, you ought to begin to be suspicious about something. And that is whether or not pride is raising its ugly head. In Job 33, and there's a lot of other places that we could look about this, but in Job 33, and in verse 13, Elihu turns to Job and says to Job, Why do you complain against him that he does not give an account of all his doings? In other words, Job was demanding that God give an account to who? To him. And folks, when you're demanding that God give an account to you, you're exalting yourself above the Lord. And let me give you a little clue. In all the things of the book of Job, And all the ways that Job demanded that God would give him an account and tell him why and demand the reason for this affliction that he didn't deserve, God is silent. He is silent. And whoever penned the book of Job, whether it be Job or someone else, only knew the reason by revelation. When our complaint, can we complain to God? The answer to that is yes. But when our complaint doesn't end with reverence, but it ends with accusation, pride has risen and is alive in our lives. Now folks, in Job 40, Job is answering to God. The Lord shows up. Which is exactly what Job wanted, right? Until he showed up. And in Job 40, then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Have you ever have you ever thought through that statement? Job was finding fault with who? With God. Not himself. And what Job wanted is he wanted an audience with God in order to make God answer him to reprove or even to correct God in his dealings with Job. That, folks, that is pride. That is not us taking the place at the feet of the Lord. That is us putting the Lord at at our feet. Which is exactly what Satan is seeking to do, is he not? 
Satan fell through pride. Lost people and even believers have a fallen nature that is after the nature of Satan. And I want you to know what Job answers here. Is Job dealing with afflictive circumstances? Is the loving Lord using this circumstance? The answer to that is yes. Does Job have a pride problem? Or you could say Job has a self-righteous problem, however you want to word it. Does Job have a pride problem? He does. And look at how the Job answers verse 3. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am I am insignificant. Do you hear that? I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice I will add nothing more. Folks, what's happening to Job right now? He's being taken off of his lofty perch, right? And he's being brought to his proper place before God. And he's acknowledging that he's he's not significant. He thought he was significant. That God was going to have to give answers to him on why God was doing certain things. And he recognizes he said this. And now he does what to his mouth? Puts his hand over his mouth. I call that sifting, wouldn't you? Taking the chaff away from the kernel of the wheat. And in our passage that we just read, Job 42, God God goes through all the aspects about creation. And basically, He just drills Job with question after question after question after question after question that Job can't what? He can't answer. What is God showing him by all these questions? If I remember correctly, I think someone said there were 42 of them. How would you like for God to ask you 42 questions you can't answer? Folks, why did God do that? What's He trying to tell Job? He's trying to tell Job, you don't have all the information. You don't have all the knowledge. And folks, that really is one of our pride problems is that we think we have all the knowledge. And I don't think that we can make a grain of sand small enough to let us know how little of the knowledge that we really have. So Job says, Job 42, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. 
and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not what? I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me. There, all of this knowledge is beyond finite man. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak and I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear but now my eye sees you. Therefore I repent in dust and... He's no longer exalted in his own eyes, is he? Folks, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. That is Job's confession of his sin. And folks, one of the ways that pride raises its ugly head in our lives when God sends afflictive circumstances is by the contrast of Job 42 and verse 4. And Job 40, verse 7. Now my Bible is right across the page. But let me, let me read Job 40. I'll begin reading in verse 6. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I, the Lord, will ask you, Job, and you, Job, instruct who? Everybody see that? And Job comes to understand it's not that I need to instruct the Lord about His ways. He needs to instruct who? He needs to instruct me about His ways. Because in Job 42, verse 4, he says, this is Job, here, He's talking to the Lord. Here now, I will speak. I will ask you. And you instruct me. Folks, when we really think that we can tell God how to do things, when we really demand for Him to give an answer to us and all the whys and all the ins and outs, this is pride. And just like with Peter, he had pride he was not aware of. But the afflictive circumstance exposed it. And Peter did repent, didn't he? Just like Nebuchadnezzar, who says, the Lord knows how to abase people. And just like Job, when his complaint didn't end with reverence, but his complaint ended with accusation and demand, the pride had risen in his heart. And when the Lord showed up, he saw it. And he repented in dust and ashes.
Nobody here in this room likes bad circumstances. You would be a strange one indeed if you did. But folks, be assured of this, that whether it's my life or your life, that there's at least two things the Lord's trying to do with our circumstances that are distressing. One, put us in our place and separate the chaff of pride from the kernel of Christ-likeness. And secondly, His design is to do us good. To do us good. And we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Not asking why. We know the ultimate why. To be conformed into the image of Christ. Not to demand from Him, but to humble ourselves before Him. And like Nebuchadnezzar say, no man can stay your hand. All of your purposes will be brought to pass. And the Lord knows how to humble people. He does, doesn't He? Mm -hmm. And may God be glorified in our confession because pride is one of those things that you and I probably need to confess how often? (laughs) Probably just have a little tape recording, right? But it does arise when we are under distress. So let's go to our Lord in prayer.